things that I've always loved about small children is that their simplistic uh, way of viewing life is often very humorous. A couple of examples of that. One day a little girl sitting and watching her mother do the dishes at the kitchen sink and suddenly she notices that her mother has several strands of white hair sticking out in contrast out of her brunette head. She looks at her mom and she inquisitively asks, Mom, why, why are your, some of your hairs white? Her mom thought about it a second. She said, well, you know, every time that you do something wrong and you make me cry or unhappy, one of my hairs turn white. And the little girl felt bad for a second, but she was thinking, and finally she looked at her and said, well, Mom, why are all Grandma's hairs white? <laughs> Think about it. It's early. I love the story of a first grader sitting in a class as the teacher was reading the story of the three little pigs. And uh, she comes to the part where the story where the first pig was trying to acquire building materials for his home. And she said, and so the pig went up to the man with a wheelbarrow full of straw and said, pardon me, sir, but might I have some straw to build my house with? The teacher then asked the students at that point, said, now, what do you think the man said to the little pig? And one little boy with that hesitancy put his hand up and said, I know, I know, I know. And she said, okay, Timmy, what did, what did the, uh, the uh, what? Oh. What did the, uh, what did the, uh, where am I going here? What did the man, <laughs> that threw me off there for a second. Oh yeah, what did the man say to the little pig that asked for the building materials? And the little Timmy said, holy smokes, a talking pig. <laughs> and the teacher was like, I got kind of like I did, kind of like lost it there for a second. Anyway, children can be very funny and often say funny things. Today they didn't say anything that was that funny, but um, most of the time they do. And the thing that's interesting about it is, is that when kids say funny things, um, it's funny because they're children. But if adults say the same type of things, it's not so funny. Uh, in fact, we th expect children to say funny things like that because they just have a little different perception or different perspective of life. But as adults, we expect more. And I love what the Apostle Paul said at one point. He said, you know, when I was a child, I acted like a child. I spoke as a child. I thought as a child. And, you know, I did childish things. He said, but there was a point when I became a man. And at that point, guess what I did? I laid aside childish things. And in, the, in our ongoing study of the book of Romans, if you've got your Bibles, in Romans chapter 6, we come to a passage that in a lot of ways reminds me of the admonition that we find that there's a time in our life where we must put aside childish things. And as I was thinking about this passage and thinking about how many times if you, had little, if you have little children and you know that you promise them that you're going to do something, you know, they're just dying to do it. You know, I'm dying to go to the beach today. I'm dying to go to McDonald's. I'm dying to go to Disneyland. I'm dying to go to wherever. You know, anytime that you say anything to them, I'm just, I'm dying to go on vacation. I'm just dying to do that. Well, in this particular passage, we learn that as Christians, we are to be dying to live. And what that means simply is this. We are to be dying to live the Christian life. We're to be dying to live the kind of life that God wants us to live. And before we look at uh, Romans chapter 6, we need to kind of review chapter 5 because it lays the foundation for what we're going to be addressing here in chapter 6. But if you recall from our last time together, in chapter 5, um, we learned that uh, sin has come into the world. If you've got your Bibles open, we see that in verse 12 of chapter 5, that sin has entered the world through one man. The Bible says because of the headship of Adam, 
uh, all of us are born into the world as sinners. And to help to re refresh that or remind you of that truth, you know, when you stop and think about it, there are a lot of things about our birth experience that obviously we had no say in. Where we were born, who our parents are, uh, what color of skin that we have, the color of eyes to a certain degree, hereditary health issues that we deal with. Um, there are a lot of things that we are born into this world and we had no choice nor did we have any say. How tall we will be to a large degree, even how much weight that we carry to some degree as we look throughout our family line, so to speak. We're going to see that there are just some things that we just can't change. They are inherent in who we are as people. And yet at the same time, we accept that and yet we'll argue with God when God says, listen, through one man, sin entered into the world and through that sin came death. We want to argue with God as if somehow or another that's not true, although we accept every other evidence that there are things about our life that we had no choice, no, no say in the matter, but that's just reality and that's just truth. And see, what God wants us to understand is this, every human being as we come into this world, or every human being, I believe the moment of conception, because of what we learned in uh, Psalm 51, where David said that in my mother's womb I was conceived in iniquity, that at the moment of conception, it's as though God stamps upon the human soul, sinner, dead in Adam. And as we come into the world, we begin to give evidence of the fact that what God says is true, that we are dead in Adam, that we are sinners, and we know that we're sinners because what? We sin. And the evidence is overwhelming. We're not good up to a certain point and then turn bad. We come in bad and continue to demonstrate that we're bad. In fact, I was sent a cartoon this week that I thought you'd appreciate. Although you didn't really appreciate the things that I started with. So I, I'm not so sure. You know, it's like somebody comes to me and says, man, i got a really funny story for you. And my, my impression at that point is usually, let me decide that. But go ahead and tell it. And so, you know, sometimes i got to remember that myself. But uh, So take this for what it's worth. It goes back to that whole idea of uh, what we're talking about. But it says, uh, here's the cartoon. I don't know if you can see it. I'll read it. It says, uh, hi, Mr. Barnaby. There's a little boy and there's an older man who's watering his grass. Mr. Barnaby, I'm conducting an informal survey. In your opinion, are people inherently good or inherently evil? Mr. Barnaby thinks it over for a second. And he's not really sure of the question, but then he responds in an appropriate manner. He turns around <laughs> and... Just. So how's that for an answer? And that's just kind of the way it is, isn't it? And uh, I love that. It's great. But, but what's the point? Well, I think the point is, is well taken. That, you know, as God says, is that we come into the world just basically rotten to the core. And, uh, you know, and it doesn't take long before we begin to demonstrate that what God says is true. Now, as we look at that... This is, called, this is what we learned as the imputation of Adam's sin upon all of humanity, upon all of his ancestors. And uh, throughout Romans, we've seen that, you know what, we are born dead in Adam, and throughout we've seen that evidence is there, that all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, none of us are righteous, each one of us has turned from God and gone our own direction, and on and on and on, the evidence was laid out very convincingly. Now what we came to understand is that you and I cannot help being born in Adam, being dead in Adam. This came with our first birth. There was no choice. It's just the way that it is. God wants us to know the facts so then we can deal with it. Just in a lot of ways, uh, for some of us, maybe you, um, you have a history in your family of high cholesterol, or you have a history in your family of congenital heart disease, or you have a history in your family of other health issues 
that once you learn that that is true of your family, then you have an opportunity to do something to some degree about it. Uh, you know, you might change your diet, you might change your eating habits, you may change and, and get involved in exercise, whatever it is. Or you may come from a family, for example, that has alcoholism uh, throughout your family. And you begin to realize that, man, you know what? I, all I got to do is look at my grandfather's an alcoholic, my uncle's an alcoholic, I got a sister or a brother's an alcoholic, I got one and this or that. And you begin to realize that, you know what? There is a susceptibility there or a propensity or a tendency to end up going that direction. So if I was smart, I'm not going to drink. See, so, you know, when we learn about certain things, we have the opportunity to do something about it. Now, in the case of our being born dead in Adam, you and I can't do anything about it, but praise God that he says that he can and he has, and he has sent Jesus Christ to die for us, for all sinners, so that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. We have the opportunity through faith in Christ to be forgiven of our sins that was imputed upon us the moment we were conceived, and we can turn to him for forgiveness. And as a result, the Bible says, having once been dead in Adam, now we are born again from above through the Spirit of God, who God puts into the hearts and the souls of every person who trusts in Christ, where we once were dead in Adam, praise God, now we're alive in Jesus Christ. And that was the contrast that we see in Romans chapter 5. He also went on to tell us this, that what we lost in Adam we have gained much more than we ever lost in Jesus Christ. And if you go through that passage and just underline certain key words, they'll just jump at you. Much more. We have gained much more than we ever lost. And that's just a wonderful truth that we need to recognize and understand. So with that kind of as our backdrop, we need to go to Romans chapter 6, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 10 as it continues on the idea that was begun in our last passage and builds upon it. In Romans chapter 6, verse 1 through 10, we read these words. Based on what we've learned, what shall we then say? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? He said, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin continue to live in it? He says, or do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory or the power of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for He who has died is free from sin." Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life that He lives, He lives to God. In this passage, before we jump into going through it verse by verse, there are a couple of terms that we need to be familiar with. And they lay the foundation for everything that we're going to learn here in chapter 6. And the two terms, uh, you, may have, uh, you may be familiar with them already. We've discussed them to some detail. But I want to make sure there's a very clear understanding between these two terms. Because when we look at these, basically, in a nutshell, what I want to try to do is, is help all of us understand justification and sanctification. 
And the reason that it's important is because chapter 6 turns the page as far as God is concerned with what he's already been talking about and now what he wants to discuss for the rest of the, for the, rest of the study in the book of Romans. And that is justification. If you recall from our study in Romans chapter 4, there was a moment in time where Abraham believed the promises of God. The specific promise of God was that God would make Abraham a great nation. Abraham, up to a moment in time, never really believed that in his heart. He heard God say it, he gave him lip service, maybe he believed it, maybe he didn't believe it, but it became evident at a point in his life when Abraham went to God and said, hey, you know what, it's been ten years since you made the promise, I don't have a son, should I adopt or what should I do because your program's lagging behind mine. And so God took him outside, gave him a visual lesson, kind of a word picture and said, look at all the stars of the universe, do you see all of those? And kind of a, as a rebuke basically was the answer, look, come out here with me and let me take you out to the woodshed, but before I whoop you, let me let you see what's going on around you. And that was kind of like what he did to Job too, you know, if you read through the book of Job, Job, you know, had all these questions for God and God started laying them out, boom, 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 answer this, answer that, answer this, answer that. Finally Job said, you know what, I'm not as smart as I thought I was, I think I'm going to put my hand over my mouth and, and I'm going to repent and, you know, you, you teach me from now on. Abraham went through the same experience. All of us go through the same experience prior to coming to a point where we believe the promises of God. Abraham had said, believed God at that point. He had not up to that point. And at that moment in time in history, the Bible has recorded that Abraham was reckoned or declared righteous before God. That is an act of justification on the part of God. At a moment in time, he was declared just before God. Not because he did anything on his own, as we already learned in that study. He hadn't been circumcised because circumcision took place 15 years after that. He hadn't obeyed the law because the law wasn't given until 400 years after that. And it wasn't anything to do with anything he did himself. The only thing that he did was what? He believed the specific promise of God. And at that moment in time, when he believed the word of God, he was declared righteous. Okay, That was an act of justification in a moment in time. Sanctification, on the other hand, is the moment in time that a person believes the Word of God. Now, put it in the context we can understand as that is this. The moment in time you and I believe the specific promise of God that, you know what, that we are born sinners, stamped upon us. It is evident by the way we live our lives that we are in opposition to the things of God. We are exactly as God says we are. We are hopelessly lost. We're on our way to hell. And if we don't respond in faith to the finished work of Christ on the cross for us, that is where we will end up. We will pay our own price for our own rebellion. The Bible says, but while the wages of sin is death, eternal death, um, physical death, spiritual death, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The moment we believe that promise of God that if you believe in Jesus Christ, you shall be saved, there's no other heaven by which man can be saved. The moment you recognize you're a sinner, the moment that you rec respond with faith to the finished work of Christ, that moment in time, the Bible says you and I, when we make that profession or confession of faith, if we believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we shall be saved. With the, with the heart, man believes, resulting in righteousness. That's what Abraham did. He believed in his heart. We believe in our heart what God says to be true. And with our lips, we confess Him, which result in salvation. There's a, there's a whole package there that we need to look at. 
The reason I bring it up is this. The moment you and I, if you have, come to a point where you've recognized you're a sinner, you've responded in faith to the finished work of Christ, that you're born again, the Bible says, that you're a new creature, all those things that the Bible uses to help us understand there's a, there's a point in time, that moment in time, from that moment we're justified, in the rest of our life, it's a work that's called sanctification. And that means this. For I am confident of this very thing, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippians in Philippians 1.6. He says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, when? The moment you believed in your heart that Jesus Christ died for you and for me, when we make that profession of faith, I am confident that he who began a good work in you, moment in time, will continue to perfect it until what? The day of Christ Jesus. The Bible was very clear. We are justified, it's an act of God in a moment of time. We are then sanctified or set apart for God's purposes from that moment forward until either we are taken from this life to the next or until Jesus returns himself to this earth as he promised or in actuality into the air in which he'll receive all believers to himself. But the point is this, that the moment we trust in Christ, the act of justification takes place. The rest of our life is a process that God calls sanctification where we are becoming more and more like Jesus every day. And that's God's plan. He wants to conform you and I who have trusted in Christ into the image of His Son throughout our life here on earth. Now, why is that so important? Because we need to understand the whole package. As a contractor, one of the things that we do is sometimes we do projects where they just build the shell of the building. So if you drove down the street, you would look and you see sometimes as you're driving through industrial areas or whatever, you'll see a shell of a building. And you'll look in the window and you'll see there's nothing in there. That's the exterior. Now, oftentimes we'll just do the exteriors and then when they get tenants, they'll move in and then they'll do the build-outs inside, which are called the tenant improvements. What God is doing is this. He has taken the exterior as a general contractor of our life and he has built that in the act of justification. Now what he's also doing is, he's doing the TIs as well, the tenant improvements. He's doing the build-out inside. So while he declares us just on the outside, he begins to work in our heart to do the interior work. So he's kind of, a, instead of the contract, he's, a, he's an exterior and an interior designer. He's not only doing a work on the outside, which is active justification, he's doing a work in our heart and he's cleaning us up from within. And it's really important that we understand that because the Bible clearly teaches if any man is in Christ... He's a new person. Old things pass away, all things become new. It is very important that we understand that if you are a new creature, that you've trusted in Christ, there has got to be a change in your life. You say, but I wasn't that bad. Well, then you haven't been listening. You were terrible. I was terrible. I can't write it off any other way. I was as bad as God says that I was. But I didn't, you know, when we come up with the list, but I never did this, that, or the other thing. Okay, well, why don't you ever say, but I did do this, this, and that. You got it? I mean, I could say, yeah, I never did these things, but I know when I look back on my life prior to the moment that I trusted in Christ, that I did a whole bunch of things that I've learned are wrong before God. And so while I may not think I was that bad, the Bible clearly says you were dead in your sin. You were dead in Adam. But now you're alive in Christ. So there's going to be a change that takes place and God is going to clean you up. 
And every day that you walk in obedience with Him, you're going to continue to become more and more like Jesus. And while you may not even see some of the changes that take place, the people around you are going to notice. What's fascinating is, is that the moment that we're declared just before God, the Spirit of God indwells that person's heart. And now God's Spirit makes us aware of sin and righteousness and judgment. I don't know about you, but when I trusted in Christ, one of the first things that God began to convict me of was my language. Now, some of you go, but I never had a problem with my language. I said, well, what was your problem? I mean, that was just one of them. And all of a sudden, I catch myself saying things and go, wow, that was pretty disgusting. I still do. Some of you go, wow, you know what? If you're a lot better than you used to be, thank God we just met you. <laughs> There's a lot of truth to that. See? And, and God starts working on you. And it was like, whoa, what was that? What, where'd that come from? Well, where it came from was, you know, the fact that we have a sin nature. And we still have a sin nature. And we got a problem with that sin nature. And we got a battle with that sin nature. And Paul says, man, the things that I don't want to do, I'm doing. The things I do want to do, I don't do. What in the world's going on here? God, I want to do what's right before you. And I'm still doing things that I, I shouldn't be doing. And man, who can set me free from this mess that I'm in? And that's where we're going and where we're heading. And what we're finding is the moment you and I trust in Christ, assuming that we have, and it's real important to understand that from here on out, all that God is dealing with, or all that God is, all that God is dealing with as far as people are concerned, are those who have come to a point where they recognize they're sinners, they've responded with faith to the finished work of Christ, His death on the cross, His resurrection from the dead. Because now what we're going to read is just for those who have been born again from God. If you haven't got to that point, all this is going to do is confuse you. Because this is going to talk about how we're supposed to live now that we've been justified before God. And it's a lifestyle that we're talking about here. So we're going to learn, as we go through this, really how to gain victory over sin in our daily life. For the Christian, how to gain sin, how to, how to gain victory over sin in, in our daily life. And the outline is a very simple one, and these are the three words that we're going to be introduced to. Uh, no we're going to find has to do with our mind, the things that we think about, the things that we should know in our mind intellectually. The word reckon or consider has to do with our heart, and we'll talk about that. And then the word yield has to do with our will. And that is simply put, we have the freedom to choose whether we want to be obedient to God or to turn and continue to be in rebellion against Him. And those are the three words. All we're going to talk about and look at this morning is just the word know, which has to do with our mind and how we think. So if you've got Romans chapter 6 open, I want you to take a look at verses um, let's see, 3, 6, and 9, and you'll notice the repetition of the word know. There are certain things that the Apostle Paul, that God wants us to know and understand that are basic doctrinal issues. Listen to me very carefully. Christian living depends upon Christian learning. Christian living depends upon Christian learning. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable. It means you'll never waste your time when you study the Word of God. And profitable for teaching, which is another word for doctrine. That you will never and I will never waste our time when we open the Bible and we study it. Because it has to do with learning so that we know how to live. Now, duty is founded upon doctrine. 
In other words, it's a pattern that's found all throughout the Bible. If you read through the New Testament, particularly the, the letters of the New Testament, what you will find as a pattern is this. That God in the first few chapters, and sometimes as many as this case, through five chapters, but through the first opening chapters of any of those letters, we will be introduced to what God would look at as doctrine. Simple words, this is what God wants us to know in our mind. And the reason that he wants us to know this is so that then we can take it and start to live it. We have to know how to live first. So always, when we're reading through it, you're going to find out this is what God wants us to know. Once we know what he wants us to know, now he will help us to learn how to live it, or in other words, hey, how should we put into practice the things that we've just learned? So it's never one or the other, it's always both. You know, when I hear people say, you know what, we have too much Bible knowledge. I just say, you know what, that's an ignorant statement. We, we can never have too much Bible knowledge. We may not have enough Bible application, but it certainly isn't because we have too much Bible knowledge. When somebody says, man, we got too much Bible knowledge, I say, you know what, no, we, we can't have enough Bible knowledge because if we had more Bible knowledge, it would be translated into the way we live our lives. We may have plenty of knowledge, but not, a, not enough obedience. But you certainly can't blame it on the teaching of the Word of God as being the reason that people aren't being obedient and applying it in their lives. Ignorance leads to impotence. If we don't know how God wants us to live, we certainly can't live it. And once we do know how God wants us to live, then we have a choice and a responsibility of whether we'll be obedient or not. But it certainly isn't because we have too much Bible knowledge. Just like our friend said this morning, we live, in a, we live in a culture that is totally ignorant of spiritual truth. We live in a culture where people are being led to believe that, you know what, we can get by on what I would call a Bible-like diet. Just give me a verse. Just give me something to feel good about myself. Don't give me a whole bunch of depth and don't give me a whole bunch of things that I'm going to have to digest, to think about, to pray about, to dig into, to study, because I don't have time. I'm really busy. So let me just come and go, and then that'll be just fine. It's like a little quote that I read somewhere. Just give me $3 worth of God, please. You know, you kind of pull up to the pumps, you know, and here we are. This is the filling station for believers. Just give me $3 worth today because i got to go to the beach pretty soon. Or i got a whole bunch of other things planned today. So let me just challenge you to consider something. When we get together to study the Word of God, I will guarantee you that the enemy wants to keep us ignorant so that we will be impotent as far as being used by God to make an impact for the kingdom of God and the world in which we live. So, if you were like me and the struggle takes place, when I come in and sit down and somebody hands me a bulletin or somebody hands me something else, my first temptation is, I think I'll just read this for a little while. My second temptation is, I think I'll just do my to-do list for the week. My third temptation is, you know what, it's like, uh, you know, I'm in a daydream. If somebody walks down the aisle, you people amaze me. If somebody walks down the aisle around here, you act like you never saw somebody walk into a building before. It's like the whole world stops and everyone goes... Did you see that person? They walked. <laughs> now, if someone died here and God rose them from the dead, let's all stop and notice that. Although some of you, borderline. <laughs> it's like that sign that I saw somewhere that says, if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, you've never seen this place at quitting time. I was at a business that I went to. <laughs> I like that. But anyway, 
Um, okay, back to where we were. And, and that is this. Paul introduces the theme immediately in Romans chapter 6. Let me explain the background. He's saying, what shall we say then? Well, why is he saying that? Because look what we just learned in chapter 5. If you look at verse 20, he says, The law came that transgression might increase. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Okay, listen. Here's what he's saying. God has already told us we're all dead in Adam. In Adam all men died. The law wasn't given until years and years later. He said that Abraham was reckoned or declared righteous before God or just before God when he believed in God, and that happened 400 years before the law. Here's the point God makes. The law was given so that you and I would learn that we are exactly as God says we are. We're dead in our sin. You got it? Because the more laws that God gave man, guess what happened? The more laws that man broke. So the more God gave laws, the more man rebelled against God's laws. It would be no different than you with your children or us with our children, and you write down a list of, you know, here's, here's the rules of the household, and the more rules that you have, the more they're going to break. God said, look, I gave you the law so that you would learn that the more laws I gave, the more you were incapable of keeping those laws, the more laws I gave, the more laws you violated, the guiltier you became, because it was overwhelming what I'm saying about you is true. The purpose of the law, the Bible says, is what in Galatians? To be a tutor or a teacher to lead us to Jesus Christ. We can't save ourselves. God gives us laws, we break those laws. The Ten Commandments are just a sampling of God's laws, and we can't keep those. Can you imagine you add all the rest of them? I think the Jews coded there were 600 and some laws, and they were trying to discover, in fact, when the, the, the lawyer went to Jesus and said, which of these laws is the important one? He said, hey, the greatest commandment is love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Second one, love your neighbor as yourself, and all of these, the law and the prophets, are summed up. He was saying, they were coming to him saying, we can't keep all your laws, it's crazy. We're struggling with the big ten, how are we going to do the rest? And so what happened was, God said, look, the more laws I gave you, the more you violated those laws. But, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So the more you were guilty, the more my grace was able and sufficient to handle your guilt, to cover your guilt, to atone for your sin. The more guilty you are, the greater God's grace. You remember the parable that Jesus gave once to the religious leaders? And he was talking about a person, and I can't remember exactly what she had done, but um, the, 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 the gist of what he was saying was, and he came to him and said, which one would be more grateful? And they said to him, the one who had been forgiven more. And he said, you are right. The greater the offense, the greater the grace. Who do you think would be more grateful? A person who is on death row that is exonerated and set free or a person who is on 30 days probation who you know, doesn't even have to do anything but just be good for the next 30 days? Well, I'll guarantee you the person that's on death row that was set free is going to be more grateful than the one who just had a 30-day probation sentence. So he's saying the same thing to you and I. Which, which of us are going to be more grateful? The one who realizes how lost and how guilty we really are. Now, what God wants all of us to realize is we're all equally guilty. And so as we look at this, their logic was a childish logic, and here's what they said. Okay, now, if God's grace increases because of sin, or the greater the violations, the greater God's grace, doesn't it just make sense that if we continue to sin, 
then God's grace will increase. So the more we do wrong, the more we're forgiven. That was how they thought. And that was a very childish perception and understanding of what God has done in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. In today's culture, we hear this often. If I do what I'm about to do, even though I know what I'm doing is wrong, and I'm talking about Christians who know right from wrong, who have the Holy Spirit of God indwelling us so He convicts us of the things that are right and wrong. But when you hear Christians say, I can do what I'm about to do even though I know that it's wrong, because what? i got enough Bible knowledge that I know 1 John 1.9. And 1 John 1.9 is, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So therefore, I can do whatever I want to do that is sin before God, and all i got to do is slap on 1 John 1.9 at the end of all of it, and God has to forgive me. That's the promise that He made. So the more I'm guilty of sin, the more God's grace will increase. And isn't this great? Because we can keep living any way we want, and God's grace is sufficient to forgive us of our sins. Is God's grace sufficient? Absolutely. And will He forgive us? Absolutely. But is there something flawed about that thinking? Absolutely. It's like saying, when you're driving down the freeway, I think I'll drive off the overpass because I know a paramedic. Right? That's the same kind of logic. Now, why do we laugh at that, but yet we buy into the other philosophy, I can do anything I want and God's got to forgive me? Because we're ignorant. And what I mean by that is not rude, but just ignorant of what the Bible teaches. And ignorance leads to impotence. And that's why many of us are not very effective for the kingdom of God because we're living ignorant lives and therefore we have no usefulness to God nor His kingdom because we are nullified or neutralized by continuing to live in sin. And that's what he said. Shall we continue to live in sin so that grace may increase? We went to a movie not too long ago. Lynn and I went to a movie and it was kind of like one of those date night movies. So I know it wasn't Gladiator. Um, that was a guy's night out movie. Um, it was another movie. And we, it's like, it, you know, those chick flicks. You know what I'm talking about, guys? It was a, it was, it was a chick flick. <coughs> oh, it was a great movie. Thanks for asking. Um, but uh, it was a wonderful evening. Um, but um, and I'm try, I can't even remember the name of it. That's, uh, I said, yeah, really. It's about some gal that lives in a Walmart. Um, what? Yeah, it wasn't a guy who yelled the answer. I'm just telling you right now. Where the heart is. It was a guy. But anyway, where the heart is, right? And, uh, and in the movie, there are a couple that are there, and they, they give off the impression as being somewhat a religious couple. Uh, but on the other hand, they are not married, and they are living together. And bottom line is this. Every morning, they get together to pray around the table, and they pray for the... See, somebody saw the movie. They pray for the food. They pray for the day. They pray for God's blessing. And then the tagline was always this. And Lord, also forgive us for our fornication that took place again this morning. Now, that was their prayer. And, and, you know, and it got to be where it was like absolutely ridiculous, but I understood it in the context of what we're talking about right now. And that is that, yeah, I want to do what's right before you, God, but I'm also weak in this area of my life, so you know what, I'm just going to keep living that way and ask you to forgive me and everything's cool. But it's not. 
Because what God says is this, shall we continue to live in sin so that grace may increase? You know what his answer is? May it never be. In fact, some translations say, God forbid. God forbid that you and I would believe we can continue to live in sin so that God's grace may increase. It says, may it never be. Because how can we, who have died to sin, continue to live in it? He's saying it's not possible. And when he's saying, how can we who have died to sin, it is how can we who have died to sin once and for all in Christ. You and I never died to sin, and we will never be dead to sin in our own flesh and in our own power. But when Jesus died upon the cross, and we died with Him, and we were identified with Him, then the Bible says that now we, having been identified with Christ at the cross, have come into a new life. So how can you and I, who have died to sin, continue to live in it? The only way we can do it is by ignorance or by simple rebellion against the truth of the Word of God. How can we die to sin, continue to live in it? And he wants us to know certain things. And the first thing that he wants us to know is a very simple thing that I just mentioned to you, and that is this, that we're dead to sin. We're dead to sin. Look at verses 2 through 5. Well, you and I are dead to sin. We have died once and for all. Romans 2. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? When did we die to sin? When Jesus died on the cross and we identified with Him, we died to sin. So, said, but why do we continue to sin? Because we still have a sin nature. Because we still have a struggle. And you notice what he says too. He says that, you know, how can we continue in sin? And I like that. And the reason I like that is this. Because the Apostle Paul identified himself with us and with his readers by saying, you know what, there's no such thing as a super saint. There's no such thing as getting to a point in your life where you're dead to sin, but other believers are still struggling with it. You and I will always struggle with sin while we're in this earthly body. Paul went on to say that in my flesh dwelleth nothing good. Not that there's anything inherently wrong with the human body, because there's not. But the Bible says, are we going to be instruments of righteousness or unrighteousness? We're going to always struggle with doing what's right before God. We need to gain an understanding of what God is saying about the truth of the matter that has taken place. When you and I trusted in Christ, we died with Him or identified with Him in His death. How can we who have died to sin continue to live in it? And you notice what he says? The answer is very simple in verse 3. Or don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death. Therefore, we've been buried with Him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. You notice that? What he's saying is this. We have died or identified with Christ in His death. A verse that I memorized when I first became a Christian, Galatians 2.20, and I challenge you to do the same thing. And the passage is this. I, Paul saying, I have been crucified with Christ, and now it is no longer I who live. The life I live in this flesh, I live by my faith in the Son of God, 
who loved me and gave himself up for me. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live. I've been identified with Christ in his crucifixion. And I don't even live anymore, but Christ lives within me. And the life I now live in this flesh, I live by my faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself or delivered himself up for me. What he was saying was he identifies with Jesus Christ now instead of identifying with Adam. He was dead in his sins with Adam. He's alive with Christ through his death and his resurrection. The Bible says that, he was, that, that we were crucified with Christ. We have a new existence. We're new creatures. We have a new position before God. We are new. And in fact, look at what the Bible says. That, you know what? He goes on to say that, do you not know you've been baptized into Christ, have been baptized into his death? The Bible says the moment you and I trust in Christ, we are baptized into the body of believers, 1 Corinthians. You and I have the Spirit of God now indwelling us who have believed in Christ. We are entered into the body of Christ with all other believers. We are identified with Him. And here's what he says. Now because that's true, verse 4, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the power of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Here's the illustration he was using. The illustration of baptism. <clears throat> and it's a great time to explain what baptism is all about. When a person trusts in Christ, the Spirit of God immediately indwells that human heart because it's the Spirit of God who regenerates a dead person and raises them from the dead and gives them spiritual life. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. Once that happens, we are now alive in Christ. We're a new creature. You follow me? The moment that that takes place, he says that we are baptized in the mode of baptism, historians know without any question at all, as immersion. Immersion. You go into the water. Let me give you a beautiful picture of what happens and what baptism is all about. When you and I in our heart believe in Jesus Christ, the Bible says we've been baptized by the Spirit of God into Christ's death. Okay? What baptism is, external baptism, is to identify with what God has already done in a person's heart who has trusted in Christ. Listen to this carefully. You go into the water, a dead person. You're baptized or identified with the death of Jesus Christ. You come out of the water, symbolizing the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus went into the tomb. Three days later, the power of God raised him from the dead. We go in dead. We come out alive in Christ. The purpose of all of this is this. Jesus Christ did not die just so you and I could have our sins forgiven, although that did take place. Jesus Christ died and then rose from the dead in order that, what? You and I might walk in newness of life. So that you and I might be different people. So that you and I, who are in Christ, old things pass away, all things become new. So that we will be dead to sin and a desire in our life to do those things and alive to the desires of God through the Spirit of God in our life to do the things that are pleasing to God. We lay aside everything behind us and now we look for a new way of living. The Christian life is not a negative experience. There will be things that we don't want to do because we know they're not pleasing to God. But the Christian life is a powerful experience, an abundant life. Jesus said, I came to give you life and to give it abundantly. It's a positive life. 
You know, think about the great commandment is what? To love the Lord your God. It wasn't the first thing was don't do this or don't do that. It was do this with all your heart, all your might, all your soul, everything in you. Love God with all your might. And lay aside everything that's behind you or everything that would hinder you. Lay aside, as Hebrews says, every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles you. And fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith, who died and rose by the power of God so that you and I could live in newness of life. What does that mean in simple terms? It means where we used to lie, we now tell the truth. Where we used to steal, we now work for it. Where we used to have sex outside of marriage, we now contain our sexual activity to our monogamous relationship with a spouse, our husband, a wife within marriage. It means that, you know, where we used to get drunk, now we don't get drunk. And we don't lean on that with, we don't lean on drunkenness, and we don't lean on drug use, and we don't lean on things what we used to live on to get through the day. Because what? We can trust in the Lord with all of our heart and not lean on our own understanding. And with all of our ways, we can acknowledge Him and He'll direct our paths. Man, it's exciting. There's nothing that's a downturn or a negative thing about being a Christian. The stuff that God doesn't want us to be involved with or things that would destroy our life. And he's saying now we've got a positive way to look and it's newness of life. We go in dead, we come out alive with Christ and we got a whole new world waiting for us that we can go and live in a way that's pleasing to God. That's exciting. And we need to understand that. We need to understand stop living in sin. And stop buying into the lie that, you know what, all i got to do is ask God to forgive me and there's no price to pay. A paramedic can patch you up, but it's going to hurt driving off the overpass. There's going to be consequences. We can't be so flippant and casual in our approach to what it means now to be alive in Christ. The Bible says go into all the world and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. To teach Him what? To observe all the things that I've commanded you. There is no such thing as too much Bible knowledge. There is such a thing as too much disobedience. But we can't blame God for that, now can we? I want to ask a question. How many of you in here recently have come to a point where you've recognized that you're a sinner before God? And you've responded in faith to the finished work of Christ, His death, His resurrection. And you have never been baptized externally to identify with what God has done in your heart. Raise your hand. Okay, here's the deal. Um, we're going to have a sheet at the back. You sign your name, put a phone number on there. And a couple of years ago we did this and we had 80-some people be baptized at the beach. We're going to do it again this summer. And the reason that we do that is because it is obedience to the revealed will of God. And that is this. Baptism in water will never save us from our sins. But baptism in water is a response to a command that we baptize one another in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Why? Because we need to identify ourselves as being dead to sin, dead in Adam, and alive now in Jesus Christ. What a wonderful experience that is, to publicly acknowledge what God has done in your life. You see, God is not looking for secret service Christians. God is not asking us to come here. You know, some people have got this mentality. It's like, I'll just come to church and I'll sneak in here. And then I'm just going to go a little undercover work for God every day of my life from here on out. I'm going to go to work. No one's going to know I'm a Christian. I'm going to go here to school. No one's going to know I'm a Christian. I'm going to go here and I'm going to play sports. No one's going to know I'm a Christian because I'm on an undercover mission. No, you're not. There's a point. I mean, think about this. See, Jesus... 
publicly call people out. And there's a reason for it. Because we cannot be ashamed of Him. The Bible says, Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you before my Father's in heaven. And, and we don't have a spirit of timidity or fear. But we've been given a spirit, the Holy Spirit of God is one of power and might, of boldness, of being able to testify before the world, of telling people that come into our path, hey, we want to tell you about Jesus. I want you to know what Jesus Christ has done in my life. I want you to know what my life used to be like, not so I'm dwelling on that, but so you can identify with that. And I want you to know what He's done in my life since then and how exciting it is to be alive in Christ. I want you to know because I don't want you to go to hell because that's exactly where you're going if you don't trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. See, Jesus, when he would walk and he would say, you going to follow me? Come and follow me. Oh, but please don't make me do that in public. That was Nicodemus, a religious leader who was a coward that snuck to Jesus at night. And he wanted questions answered about spiritual things, but he didn't want anybody to see that he was asking him about it. But let me tell you something about Nicodemus where he snuck to Jesus at night to get his questions answered when he came to faith in Jesus Christ as Messiah. It was Nicodemus who went and bought the burial plot. It was Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea who went to the foot of the cross and carried the broken body of his Savior back to that tomb and identified himself in public and he didn't care what anybody thought because he knew who he believed in and he knew what he believed and he knew that he was persuaded that he who had given him his very soul would be able to keep it until that day of judgment. Nicodemus wasn't afraid to take a public stand. Neither should we. But it's inconvenient. Really. You think it was inconvenient for Jesus in the garden that night when he was arrested? You think it was inconvenient when he was taken and put on a mock trial? When he was spat upon? When he was scourged? When they took a whip of cat and nine's tails where they take broken shreds of pottery and bone and put it in a whip and they whipped his back. But the Bible said it's by his, by his uh, stripes that we are healed. Think it was inconvenience when they blindfolded him and he smacked him around and they said, okay, if you're really God, who just hit you? You think it was inconvenient whenever he was called out as a son of fornication and made fun of because they had heard of his virgin birth? You think it was inconvenient when he was nailed to the tree and as he hung at the cross, they said, if you're really the Savior, why don't you get down and save yourself and save us too? How about when the sword was thrust into his side? You think any of that was very convenient? See, the problem is, is that many of us, we want to identify with Christ in life, but we don't want to identify with Christ in his death. But Jesus said, if any man would come after me, what? He better take up his cross daily identify himself with the death of Jesus Christ, and then follow me. It's a public call. And we need to recognize and understand that that's just simply the truth of the Word of God. We have identified with Him in death so that we might walk in newness of life. For we have become united with Him, in verse 5, in the likeness of His death. Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. One day, because we are identified with Christ in His death, guess what? We will be raised from the dead. The Bible teaches that we will be physically raised from the dead. Though the Bible teaches when we're absent from our body as believers, we'll be present with the Lord the moment that we die. The Bible also teaches there's a day coming that we will all be physically raised from the dead. 
and we will be given bodies that are, that are bodies that are eternal bodies, that have no flaws, that are physically bodies, just as Jesus had after he rose from the tomb. We can be sure of that. That's something in the future. It says, but knowing this, that our old self was crucified, in verse 6, with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. What he's saying is, hey, you know what? We don't need to serve sin anymore. It was, sin was our master before we came to know Christ, but Jesus died to free us from sin. The things that I did, I didn't, I didn't even want to do them. There were a lot of things that I just did, it just came natural, and that's just the way it was because I was a sinner. And all the things I shared with you, the things that I thought, the things that I did, the things that I said, it was just who I was, dead in Adam, and that's what came out of me. But we're freed from that. We're new creatures. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, and we'll end on this, he died to sin once and for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. See, Jesus rose from the dead so that he could live for God. You and I have been identified with his death and we've been raised to live. How? So that we can live for God. That's our purpose. If any man wishes to come after me, let him deny himself daily and come follow me. We don't like to deny ourselves, do we? We live in a culture where there's no such thing anymore as self-denial. We've got credit cards. We don't have to wait to pay cash for anything. We've got an attitude that we can have what we want whenever we want it. We don't even know what self-denial is. But you see, God says in order for us to live, we've got to die first. And we have to die to self so that we'll be alive to God. I'm just going to challenge you as I've challenged even myself as I've gone through this. Is that, you know, it's like, is there anything in your life that's holding you back from living for the Lord. Confess your sin. He's faithful and He's just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But never forget the question, shall we continue to live in sin so that grace may increase? God forbid that we ever think like that. How can we who have died to sin continue to live in it? I guarantee you this, if you've come to know Christ and you're living in sin, the Spirit of God is just beating you up. And there's no joy. You're, you're what I call a tweener. You know what a tweener is? It's like a person that lives between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. You believe in the death of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, but you're not living in the power of His resurrection in your daily life. You know what? Once you move from Friday to Sunday, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And for us, Sunday is here. Live and walk in the newness of life. Father, we just thank You for Your Word. We just look forward to the rest of this chapter. You tell us what you want us to do, which is to walk in the newness of life. Next week, you're going to tell us how to do that as we read the rest of this passage. And we just praise you and we thank you for that. We just thank you for your truth that sets us free as we're obedient. We just thank you that all of us who have uh, believed in Jesus Christ, received him as Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of our sins. We've been identified with him. We've been baptized unto his death and now we are raised from the dead so that we're new creatures and walking in newness of life. God, help us to understand what's all involved in that new way of living. And uh, we just praise, praise you as you change our hearts and your, our lives. We just uh, look forward to how as we yield our will to you that we can walk in newness of life. 
And we just thank you in Christ's name. Amen.